So it turns out I'm lucky to have made it this far in life without running out of the spice mid-cook. I still don't really believe you. You're claiming that the first time you've ever run out of a spice while cooking is at the age of 30. <laughs> Come on, get real. A really good friend of mine who uh, house sat for us when we were in Fiji and looked after my little baby Bean texted me after the episode went out and said, your spice drawer is impressive. I'm surprised you ran out. <laughs> It is a shock. So we asked on Instagram, have you ever run out of a spice mid-cook? 92% of you said you had. I still have it's topped up my sumac. I need to go to the supermarket. Yeah, I can imagine you're a good cook. Right. Yeah. I'm a recipe follower, though. I think we've had this discussion before. I'm a, I'm a recipe follower. You're a scientist rather than an artist. I'll tell you what, and where you'll find me tonight. Glowed to the sofa for the leaders' debate on TVNZ. Ah, yes, the first. How good. Feels like it's very close to an election to be having the first debate. Is it always this close? It's very late in the piece. It will be interesting. And then all of a sudden it's like one a week. Many a debate to keep up with. Indeed. But for now, let's kick on with the show. Kia ora, this is Newsville. I'm Emil. And I'm Imogen. And this is what's worth talking about. We hear how victims are responding to a damning independent inquiry into decades of sexual abuse at Dilworth School. Also, Labour is pledging help with solar panels if they're re-elected. But how costly are solar panels these days? And how much do you really save? Should we be fortifying food to help vegans and others who may be at risk of iron deficiency? And how a mysterious hole on an Irish beach whipped up some serious space chat. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. A catalogue of damage and injustice was how an independent inquiry described decades of sexual abuse at one of New Zealand's most prominent secondary schools, Dilworth School in Auckland. The inquiry was led by former Governor-General Dame Sylvia Cartwright and Francis Joychild KC and was commissioned after stories emerged detailing horrific allegations of bullying and sexual abuse. Twelve former staff members and men connected to the school have been arrested and charged in connection to the case. And just a warning for those listening that you might want to exercise caution here as we are talking about the abuse of children and young people. Stuff's senior reporter Edward Gay has been covering proceedings the whole time and has spoken to some survivors about the report. He joins us now. Kia ora. Kia ora. What have the people you've spoken to had to say about this report, Eddie? Well, one of the survivors I've spoken to, Neil Harding, he spoke of his wish that the the police take this report and run with it and look into the possibility of charging senior school leadership, those people who were in positions of power who decided not to refer abuse to the police at the time. The scale and scope of the abuse here is horrifying. Tell us a bit about the conclusions this report came to. The the inquiry looked into, firstly, the scale of the abuse. And as you say, it was huge. It um, it covers a a period of, of half a century. It's north of 170 boys who were sexually abused at this time. There's also the physical abuse aspect to it as well. So they looked at 
the extent of the abuse and what led to that abuse. And that covers everything from the school's governance model with a board that is focused on the school trust side of things, Mm -hmm. focused on growing the school's assets, the massive um, tracts of land it owns around Auckland. It's worth over a billion dollars. The inquiry found that what that board is missing and has always missed is any representation from from someone with expertise in school governance, mm-hmm. with knowledge about how a school runs on a day-to-day basis, with you know, skills in, in child safety. Um, those aspects have been missing from that board. And, and that's actually, that's a, a personal part of the story, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, any kind of sexual abuse is absolutely horrifying. But th- these boys were especially vulnerable because of the nature of Dilworth as a school. It was set up to provide an education to disadvantaged young men, yeah? Yeah, we, we, we're talking about a school that that sole purpose was to provide a high standard of education to boys who came from, you know, backgrounds of, of sole parents of families who had experienced trauma and poverty. Mm. And this school has always been about providing young men, and it is still men, with an educational opportunity they wouldn't otherwise have. When they suffered this horrific sexual abuse, caning, the bullying some of those boys felt absolutely torn because here they were given this this amazing opportunity mm. on the one hand and they felt guilty complaining to their parents or their, their mothers about it. Eddie, 12 former staff members and men connected to the school have been arrested and charged. Where are the criminal cases at? Well, they're at various stages. Um, some of those men, uh, Richard Galloway, for example, died before their cases got to court. Others have pleaded guilty and are currently serving prison sentences. Uh, And um, Ross Brown, the former chaplain, is one of those, as is Ian Wilson, the former deputy principal. And there are others still before the courts. Eddie, is there any sign of restitution here for victims? Well, running alongside the uh, independent inquiry is a redress scheme. Uh, The redress scheme has, from what I understand from speaking to survivors, has hit some hurdles. Mm. Some of these men have had their lives blighted by sexual abuse. You know, they have had failed relationships. Some of them are dealing with addiction issues. Some of them have served prison time. Some of them are really desperate for a little payout now and perhaps the rest for later, but a little payout now just so they can get back on their feet again and um, and get their life moving again. Whilst there is a... A redress scheme. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's made much ground in terms of payouts as yet. And I guess, you know, part of the reason is it needs the inquiry mm-hmm. uh, finding to to determine the extent of the abuse. But at the same time, a lot of that abuse has been documented in court cases. Here we go. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We're talking solar panels in a second. And you know what? I've never met anyone who has solar panels. Have you? No, I haven't. So we, so get in touch with us if you've got one or some. I imagine you'd need, you probably have more than one if you've got them. We won't tell anyone where you live, we, we promise. No, we no. won't. We just become the first people that we've ever met that have solar panels. Get in touch on Instagram and also email us the details. Usable at stuff.co.nz for those emails and at usablenz for Instagram. Please. Solar powers are having a bit of a moment in the sun. 
Cunning. Uh, Chris Hopkins and the Labour Party are promising that if re-elected, they will give people $4,000 towards installing solar panels and batteries, which they say will double the number of solar-powered homes in the country. Now, I'm going to be completely transparent here. When this was announced, I realised I have very little, in fact, no knowledge of the ins and outs of solar panels. So we're not going to talk policy here. We're talking Pure panel. We're talking straight panels. And here to tell us what we need to know is Matt Ward, CEO of Solar Zero, the country's largest solar panel provider and installer. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Matt, how many solar panels do I need to power my townhouse? There's two of us living there. I run the dishwasher every day. I'm doing laundry most days. What would that take? Good question. I think our typical customer has around 10 to 11 solar panels. Mostly it's uh, determined off what you can fit on the roof. And 10 to 12 panels will probably give you about two-thirds of your total energy consumption. Right. Okay. So so it's pretty much any individual home, it will have to have a balance of solar-generated electricity and then uh, regular electricity, I guess. Is that the way to talk your about it? standard. Yeah. I mean... What, the way we do things at Solar Zero is we put solar panels on, but we also put a battery on. So right. every single one of our installations has both. And the reason we do that is because we charge the batteries up during the off-peak times. So say one to four in the morning when everyone's asleep and electricity is, not to use a pun, but buzzing around while we're all asleep. Nice. So we charge the batteries up. You get up in the morning at seven o'clock. Battery does its thing. Sun comes up does its thing between 10 and 3, 4 in the afternoon, so you're using all the solar energy, and then any excess is put back into the battery. So when you get home from work, you're using that grid energy from the battery, and in the evening, you're not relying on the grid, but you definitely do need both. We don't have customers that are purely off-grid. And how much does it cost to fit out a property? We'll stick with the same example, townhouse, 9 to 10 solar panels. If you were just putting in the panels only, it would be about nine to ten grand, and then when you come to add a battery, you're looking at twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars extra, or all together. All together. So they're not cheap, are they? They're not cheap. I mean, they have come down a lot. They've come down about fivefold in the last wow. decade or so. So typically, you know, solar panels have been coming off at a rate of, sort of ten to fifteen percent per annum. COVID sort of put a bit of a spanner in the works because of freight costs and other things, but that sort of decline has started to continue again. And then on the other side of the fence, the battery is where we're seeing a lot of the price decompression now. Matt Ward, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Hey, we're still going to talk about the mysterious hole on a Dublin beach that turned out to be a galactic anticlimax in the end. But uh, while we've got you here... If you're enjoying what you're hearing, why not chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform? It really helps other people find us too. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, 
Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. There's been an absolute explosion in the last few years in the number of people subscribing to plant-based or plant-dominant diets, which is great if that's what you're into. But adopting this kind of diet can lead to some complications because humans need a wide variety of nutrients and micronutrients, some of which are hard to find or hard to digest when they come from plants. Now, one of those nutrients is iron. Uh, Many nutritionists believe that as plant-based diets become more common, so too will people experiencing iron deficiency. The question being, how do we proactively guard against this? Well, Maya Tavan has some ideas. Maya is a postdoctoral fellow at Massey University's Sustainable Nutrition Initiative, and she's with us now. Hello there. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I'm going to start with a dumb question, if that's okay. But what is iron and why do we need it? So iron is an essential micronutrient that all of us need to carry oxygen from our lungs to other tissues. So it's an important part of a molecule called hemoglobin in our blood, which carries oxygen. And if you are iron deficient, how does that manifest in how a person feels? So the most common symptoms could be fatigue, being tired, um, decreased cognitive capacity, things like that. And iron from animal sourced foods is easier for the body to, to process than, than plant-based iron? Yeah, exactly. So the form of iron in animal-sourced foods is usually what we call heme iron, and heme iron is the most bioavailable form of iron, as opposed to non-heme iron, which is the form of iron that is usually found in plant-sourced foods. What's the solution there, I guess, for people following a plant-based diet? If for any reason consumers choose to go for a more plant-forward diet, there are things that they can do. First of all, there are things that can increase iron absorption, like adding vitamin C to the the meals that contain iron, and it can increase the uh, absorption of those kind of non-heme ions. The other thing, depending on the level of deficiency, could be going for food items that are either fortified with added iron or if uh, more severe supplementation or other thing that a medical expert can recommend them. You, you talk about the idea there of sort of fortifying foods with iron. What, what does that involve? Yeah, so fortification, first of all, there was a survey asking people, do you even know what fortification is? And a lot of Australian and New Zealanders didn't know what fortification was. So fortification is adding nutrients that are usually lacking from a food, like some sort of artificial addition of uh, nutrients. And it's a common practice. Currently, we have iodine fortification of bread in place in New Zealand, uh, which is mandatory. And recently, folic acid has also uh, become mandatory in New Zealand. So we are already getting fortified foods in our diets anyway. So one approach for iron uh, could also be getting added iron to uh, food items. Really interesting stuff, Maya. Thank you so much for enlightening us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Imogen, let me ask you a question. Apart from Aotearoa, New Zealand, what is the greatest country in the world? Well, I think we both know the answer to that. All right. Should we both both say what we're thinking on the count of three? Okay. One, two... 
three. Ireland. Wales. I knew you were going to say Ireland. Wales. Ireland. I should have known that you were going to say Wales. <laughs> Ireland is the answer I was looking for. And uh, Ireland has once again only gone and charmed the rest of the world with a delightful yarn that popped up on a local news bulletin. Please tell us what happened. A man was walking his dog along the beach in northern Dublin when he happened across a mysterious hole in the sand. It was pretty deep. It was eerily symmetrical and very puzzling to this man. So what did he do? Well, he called the local TV station Virgin Media News to outline his suspicions. I was mind blown when I actually looked in and actually saw the rock itself. And it's the colour of it as well. It's quite dark. It's like coal. But yet it's, it's as solid and as heavy and dense. As you can tell by here, there's a scorch mark on this side here. So that would have been at the angle that it came down at. And uh, it is weighty. I'm not sure if it's composition, but we're definitely going to have to find out. It's not every day that a meteorite blows a hole in a beach in Dublin. I didn't no. even know Dublin had beaches. There you go. So naturally, <laughs> this uh, this did the rounds on social media for a few days. It picked up a, a decent bit of traction. And then another video emerged. And it was, it was from earlier that very same day. And it was of that very same beach. Mm. And it was of a couple of Irish lads digging a hole with the exact same proportions as the meteorite hole. It was. In fact, tragically, it was the meteorite hole. So the meteorite hole was not a meteorite it hole. Uh, it was a grown man digging a hole like a bunch of children at the beach hole, <laughs> which, to be fair, is very common. <laughs> to the credit, uh, Virgin Media News did cover this development the following day. The mystery of the hole on the North Dublin beach has apparently been solved, denting the hopes of a local space enthusiast who had hoped it was the site of a meteor strike. But footage emerged last night of two men digging a hole on Port Marnock Beach. Local astrophysics buff David Kennedy was startled by the discovery and thought a rock he found in the hole might have come from the skies above. Today he says he's disappointed, but he's still getting the rock analysed in the hopes that it wasn't a completely fruitless discovery. God loves a trier. And we will, of course... Keeping a very close eye on any developments in the lab analysis of that mysterious rock. But until then, I think that's newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. And I'm Emil Donovan. Thank you very much for listening, as always. And we'll catch you tomorrow. What is it with men and digging holes at the beach? That's just so much fun to dig. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. It, it, yeah, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.